Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author. And in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. The voice on the emergency call was so quiet, the dispatcher could barely make out the words. I said, we need help. We need medics, ambulances. I said, we've been stabbed. We're dying. The voice, little more than a whisper, then gave an address. 544 Castle Drive. When medics arrived, they found the back door of the apartment open and pushed inside. There, the scene was like nothing they'd ever witnessed. Two bodies, a man and a woman, lay motionless on the ground, surrounded by a pool of blood. At first, it appeared they were both dead, but then one started to move. The first thing I said was something like, forget me, check my kids, how are my kids? The medics went deeper into the house and found two children in separate bedrooms. Both had been murdered so viciously that at least one responding medic rushed from the house to vomit. The only person to survive the brutal attack on February 17, 1970, the man who had called for help then said he'd passed out next to the body of his wife, told a tale so shocking it made international headlines, was the subject of books and a TV movie, and sparked a criminal case that reached the U.S. Supreme Court twice. Jeffrey McDonald was the second of three children born to parents Robert and Dorothy McDonald. The couple raised their kids in Long Island. They weren't rich. In fact, they probably wouldn't even qualify as middle class. But they had high hopes for their offspring and worked hard to ensure that their kids would have a better start in life than they had had. Robert McDonald demanded obedience and achievement. And for the most part, his children delivered. In high school, Jeffrey not only was captain of the football team, but he was voted most likely to succeed and most popular. And this was a guy who graduated with a scholarship to Princeton University, an Ivy League school, and who would soon set his sights on medicine. Then, after he became a doctor, he would join the army and even become a Green Beret. Jeffrey had married his college sweetheart, Colette Stevenson, in 1963. I mean, well, technically, Colette and Jeffrey had actually started as middle school sweethearts. But after going out a short while, they'd broken up and gone their separate ways. It wasn't until the two left their hometown of Patchug, New York, that they reconnected through letters that they would write back and forth. Colette was a quiet, intelligent girl who'd grown into a demure woman. After high school, she'd entered Skidmore College, a private liberal arts school in Saratoga Springs, New York. Colette was one of two children born to Edward and Mildred Stevenson. When Colette was just 12, her father died by suicide, devastating the family. About two years later, however, Mildred met her second husband, a man named Freddie Kassab, whom Colette just adored. 
Freddie had lost his own wife and baby daughter years earlier and was happy to step in as a surrogate father to Colette and her brother, Robert. After Colette and Jeffrey's middle school flirtation, Colette had gone on to date other boys, boys with an eye on courtship. But Mother Mildred saw great potential in Jeffrey and was elated when Colette said that they had reconnected in college. And by reconnected, I mean all that hot and heavy stuff that lots of people remember experiencing with their first loves. Two years into college, when Colette was 20, she learned she was pregnant. Her parents were mortified and suggested an abortion. But Colette and Jeffrey said they were in love. Jeffrey especially had been such a golden boy, this overachieving, athletic, academically gifted kid whose teachers couldn't say enough good things about him. But he was determined to do the quote-unquote right thing. He and Colette quickly got married. They honeymooned in Cape Cod. My memory is of basically Colette and I looking at each other and smiling and sort of punching each other in the arm like, can, can this be true? Are we finally really together and, uh, and married and uh, actually moving on with a full life together? It was a wonderful time. That was 1963 and Colette had left Skidmore, but Jeffrey was still a Princeton student when baby Kimberly joined them. The first years of marriage were predictably a bit tricky. I mean, while Colette's family was comfortable, that didn't translate to unlimited funds for her and her husband. Rather, they lived in some small, sketchy apartments, not just in New Jersey while Jeff finished undergrad, but also in Chicago. They moved to the Windy City in the summer of 1965 after Jeffrey had been accepted to Northwestern Medical School. He was nearing the end of his studies— when Colette gave birth to their second daughter, Kristen. Colette had envisioned that after med school, Jeff would become a surgeon and life would settle down a bit. But the Vietnam War was still underway, and Jeff wasn't one to sit on the sidelines. His older brother, Jay, had enlisted in the Marines. Jeff was the type to emulate his brother, but always with a twist. He couldn't do things exactly the same way, of course. So he set his sights on the Army. During training, he was impressed by a recruiter for the U.S. Army Special Forces, better known as the Green Berets. I mean, this shocked no one who knew Jeff. Jeff has always liked to excel. He's always been a jock. He's always been sort of a hard-charging kind of guy. This is friend Michael Malley in the documentary False Witness. The Green Berets were where you could express your jockhood. And it was an elite group. And Jeff has always striven to be part of the best that's around. Now, Jeff had enlisted thinking he'd be deployed to serve in the Vietnam War. But it turned out that wasn't likely because he had become a Green Beret. This was a load off Colette, who hadn't been thrilled with the idea of her husband and the father of her children going off to war. And the family moved into an apartment reserved for married officers at Fort Bragg in North Carolina. Even though this wasn't quite as domestic and settled as Colette had envisioned, it wasn't far off. The couple's home was bigger than anywhere they'd lived thus far. It was in a well-maintained brick building in a quiet neighborhood. Both daughters had their own bedrooms. Things were pretty comfortable, or at least that's what Colette wrote in letters to friends and family. In one letter, she said life had never been so normal or happy. Around Christmas 1969, Colette learned she was pregnant again. At that point, she was about three months along. 
She knew Jeffrey wanted a son, and so they both seemed happy when news came that she was indeed carrying a boy. In a letter, Colette wrote that their family would be complete. He seemed a devoted father. In that he cared about his family. This is former colleague Meryl Bronstein. He was constantly showing me pictures of his children, of a Christmas gift he had purchased, of a pony for one of the girls. He seemed to care about his family. I mean, how idyllic must your life be if you've got a dad who buys you a pony for Christmas? Now, Colette was focused on supporting Jeff achieve his professional goals while she stayed home and raised their kids. But she had other ambitions, too. She'd already gone to two years of college and began taking night classes as well. Her goal was to get a degree in literature and maybe teach part-time. At the start of 1970, she was enrolled in a child psychology course. On February 16, 1970, she got a ride to that class with a friend. During class, she asked a question that hinted at a seemingly minor issue the family had been struggling with. Colette asked the instructor how he would suggest handling a kid who'd been climbing into her parents' bed at night. This was one of those questions that sounds hypothetical, but everyone knew was really quite personal. I mean, the instructor even asked, is this your child? And Colette said, yes, my youngest daughter. She said the girl would crawl into bed and crowd her mother out. Colette wanted to put the girl back in her own bed, but she said her husband told her to leave the girl, and so Colette would go sleep on the couch. The instructor made the question a sort of class discussion, and the consensus ended up being that after the kid is soothed, she should be taken back to her own bed so she understands that's where she belongs. The classmate said, quote, I remember Mrs. McDonald sitting there, smiling and nodding, apparently happy with the decision of the class, end quote. Any parent would agree that this point of contention isn't unusual, and if it's the worst problem you've got with your partner, you are doing okay. And yet, it was just a few hours after Colette had posed this seemingly benign question that she and her two daughters were murdered. When medics arrived at the McDonald's home February 17, 1970, they found a horrific scene. Blood soaked the carpet beneath Colette and Jeffrey's bodies. Five-year-old Kimberly had been beaten so brutally in the head that her cheekbone was visibly protruding. Two-year-old Kristen suffered stab wounds that nearly penetrated her front to back. In all, the three victims had been stabbed some 80 times total. Colette was sprawled on the floor of the master bedroom. This is Richard Kahn, a lawyer who eventually represented Colette's parents. On the headboard of the bed was written the bloody word, pig. Kimberly and Kristen were dead, each tucked under the covers in her own bed. While the damage done to the bodies was so great that it was tough to make sense of the wounds, pathologists believed that Colette and Kimberly died from blunt force trauma to their heads. The way the blood formed around them suggested that by the time they were stabbed, their hearts were barely pumping, if at all. Kristen, however, suffered no blunt force trauma. She had been stabbed to death. Jeffrey McDonald was injured too. Medics saw he'd been stabbed with something long and thin, like an ice pick, in the chest. He had a knot on his head as well. They had a hard time looking him over at the scene because he kept fighting them off, saying he needed to go check his children. 
He was so distraught, it took several men to haul him out of the apartment on a stretcher. When Jeff calmed down enough to answer a few questions, he gave a description of his assailants, which I'll outline shortly, and then he was treated for his wounds at the hospital. The injury to his chest had gone through two ribs and collapsed his right lung, requiring doctors to put tubes in him to help him breathe. He otherwise looked like he'd be okay physically, if not emotionally. Jeff told his story to officers of the Army CID, or Criminal Investigations Division. He said that the night had started out completely normal. Colette had gone to her class, then stopped by a market to grab milk for the morning. Jeffrey was, quote-unquote, babysitting. I hate it when dads call pulling their weight as parents babysitting, but that's for a separate podcast. Regardless, Jeff had watched a little TV with Kimberly and put both girls to bed in their separate rooms. So they were already asleep when Colette got home. It had been raining outside, and Jeffrey said Colette came home wet from the rain, so she changed from her clothes into pajamas and then joined him on the couch. They might have made chit-chat, but when he tried to remember what they talked about, nothing really jumped to mind. And that's how mundane everything was, he said. Then, just as Johnny Carson's late-night TV show was starting, Colette went to bed. A few hours later, Jeffrey said he went to join her, but saw that Kristen, the couple's youngest, had climbed into bed again. So instead of carrying her back to her room, Jeffrey opted to sleep on the couch. The next thing I knew, I was awakened on the couch. This is Jeffrey in an interview with Larry King. And I was awakened by a combination of hearing my wife screaming for help and asking for me, and my older daughter, five-year-old, yelling, screaming for help, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. And my wife was saying, Jeff, Jeff, why are they doing this? Help, Jeff. And I started to push up. There was a little light on in the kitchen, which is a small apartment, and there was some light in the living room from this light in the kitchen. And there were, to my immediate view, three people. It turned out there were four, but... I saw three people, a black male, two white males. The black male had on an army jacket with E6 sergeant stripes. Then Jeffrey caught a glimpse of a fourth person. This one, a woman with long, stringy blonde hair. She wore a broad, floppy hat and boots that ended just before her knees. And I heard her say, acid is groovy, kill the pigs. I heard her say that more than once, and also the term acid and rain. It it was raining outside at the time. Jeffrey said it was all happening so fast that he had trouble orienting himself at first. I mean, he'd been asleep on the couch, and suddenly there was chaos all around him. I didn't know what was going on. I heard my wife, I heard my daughter, and I saw these people, and I either said, and I to this day don't know if I said it or thought I was going to say it, you know, what the hell are you doing here? Who are you? What's going on? And the black male to my left raised something, and he swung a club at me, and I threw my hand up, and he hit me in the head with a club, which... I took to be a baseball bat. The bash to his head knocked Jeffrey back down on the couch. Now my head was ringing and I, and I it was having a hard time getting up and my, uh, the, the comforter was still over my legs. And, but I pushed back up and I'm, and I'm trying to, and I was getting struck in the chest and about the head. And I threw my hand up again and took another blow to the side of the head. And during this time, I suddenly developed a real severe chest pain. And I I remember real distinctly thinking to myself, this guy throws a hell of a punch. In hindsight, he said that must have been when he was stabbed. 
At some point in the struggle, Jeffrey's pajama top was ripped from his head and got wrapped around his arms. He was defensively shielding himself from the attacker's blows with that shirt wound around his forearm. He was hit in the head again and knocked unconscious. And when he came to, he said, the assailants were gone. He staggered to the primary bedroom and saw Colette covered in blood. He dropped the pajama top and fell to her side to attempt CPR, but he said he could hear the air escaping. It was doing no good. Then he stumbled to Kimberly's room and saw she was dead, and then to Kristen's. He tried to find pulses on both of them, he said. And then, and he couldn't explain why he would do this, but he washed his hands. He dialed zero for an operator and asked for help. Then he circled back to each victim again and dialed the phone again. And then he collapsed at his wife's side. McDonald told that story to multiple reporters and was criticized for sounding unsettlingly straightforward and just too calm and uncaring. But in fairness, he sounded completely different when he went under hypnosis in 1979 in hopes of jogging loose more detail from his memory. What are you doing now? I hear Kimmy screaming, Daddy, Daddy. I hear Kimmy screaming. Daddy, 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 Daddy. That's fine. What? Back when the attack happened, journalists pounced on the story. I mean, it had so many crazy, upsetting elements to it. If you remember, Colette was pregnant. So we have a 25-year-old pregnant wife killed alongside her two adorable children. And their husband was not only in the army, but he was a physician and a Green Beret. They should have been safe on a military base. Cars routinely patrolled the neighborhood looking for anyone who didn't belong. And then on top of that, you had this story about four hippies as killers. That hippie element was particularly disturbing because this crime came just six months after the Manson murders in August 1969. That case is higher profile than the ones I am to cover in this series, but for the uninitiated, the gist is that a long-haired, free-loving guy named Charles Manson ordered his followers to kill people. The best-known murders were the stabbing and shooting deaths of eight people in two separate incidents. Messages scrawled in blood were left at both scenes, including Pig at the Sharon Tate scene and Death to Pigs at the La Bianca scene. It was those messages, in fact, that ultimately got police to put two and two together and realize that the Tate and La Bianca cases were connected. And here at the McDonald scene, there was the word pig again. It was written in blood on the headboard of Jeffrey and Colette's bed. So even though the Manson murders were in California and the McDonald murders in North Carolina, people had to wonder, was there a connection? I mean, at this point, Charles Manson was locked up, as were his known followers. So the idea that another crew of the same leaning might have attacked the McDonald house, well, that scared the hell out of people. In the Army post of Fort Bragg, North Carolina, some bizarre murders took place last night, which the base provost marshal says are reminiscent of the sheriff's All unidentified were stabbed to death in the bedroom area of their home in the Corregidor Court housing project on post, in what military authorities are now terming a ritualistic killing. Strangely, the CID waited six weeks to interview Jeffrey McDonald in detail. He had given his story before, but it had always sort of been on his rushed terms. 
The first time they sat him down for an in-depth interview was April 6th. And at that point, they were certain he wasn't a victim of this heinous crime. He was the perpetrator. Turned out they had been dubious of his account from day one. The McDonald's apartment was spacious compared to the other places that they had lived, but it was still pretty small. Investigators at the scene said it just didn't make sense that there were four attackers in the small apartment, and yet the place wasn't as trashed as it should have been. I mean, Valentine's Day cards were still upright on display. The coffee table in the living room was tipped over, but it just didn't look like a life-or-death struggle took place. Among five people, five adults in the living room, the table lamps would have been knocked over, the chairs would have been knocked over, the, the whole room would have been in disarray. That was Paul Stombaugh, former head of the FBI's chemistry section. Also, McDonald's injuries were so out of proportion to the others. He had one stab wound, and while he'd claim in interviews later that he had more than a dozen superficial cuts along his abdomen, no doctor remembered seeing them, and they weren't noted in his medical record. Additionally, investigators hadn't found evidence of any outsiders in the apartment. There were no muddy footprints leading from the outside in, nothing that couldn't be tied to the four people living there. Fibers that appeared to come from McDonald's pajama top weren't just found near each of the bodies, but they were found beneath the bodies, meaning that they couldn't have simply fallen off while he checked pulses. And also, despite McDonald's insistence that none of the weapons used in the attack, the club, knives, or ice pick, came from his house, the club, at least, matched wood found in a pile inside of Kimberly's closet. McDonald denied any involvement, He couldn't explain the discrepancies, he said, but it all happened so fast, it was a blur. He simply couldn't remember enough to allay these concerns, but he insisted he was no killer. Why would I do that, he argued. We were so happy. But investigators knew better. He had uh, a number of extramarital affairs, the most recent one before the crimes being a couple of months Lawyer Richard Kahn again. He and his wife did not get along. He was a very arrogant uh, individual, very proud, kind of uh, Superman type of guy that you couldn't challenge without being shot down. This was a side of Jeffrey McDonald that very few people had seen. So few, in fact, that even when Colette's parents learned that the Army was charging him with murder, they were 100% behind their son-in-law. This is Freddie Kassab, Colette's stepfather, talking about those allegations at the time. The Army contends my daughter and two grandchildren suffered in excess of 80 stab wounds. What they want the public to believe is that a sane man, and they charge premeditation, mind you, sat down and planned to perform such an act. I don't believe anybody in this country would believe that, that a sane man would do this. The Army held what's called an Article 32 hearing, which is similar to a preliminary hearing in civilian court. Instead of leading to a criminal trial, it could lead to a court-martial, which is basically the same thing, but in military terms. Kassab's faith in his son-in-law was actually bolstered by the info revealed in this Article 32 hearing, at least at first. That's because the CID gathered evidence at the scene But they did a really shitty job of it, like objectively shitty. 
The missteps in this case are infuriating. For starters, the night of the deaths, no one bothered to set up roadblocks to search for this acid-tripping party of four. One officer even reported seeing a woman in a broad-brimmed floppy hat hiding in the rain. He'd let her go because he spotted her on the way to the crime scene and didn't know yet that she supposedly matched the description of one of the assailants. That officer let his supervisor know what he saw, but the supervisor later claimed he hadn't heard him. Investigators also dusted for fingerprints, but then failed to hold the camera steady enough to get clear photos of a lot of them. They took fingernail scrapings from Colette because it had appeared she'd scratched someone and had skin beneath her nails, but then they lost the scrapings before they could be tested. They collected a blue fiber stuck in blood to Kristen's hand, but that was lost as well. They preserved a bloody footprint from the hardwood floor of Kristen's bedroom by slicing out a chunk of the floor, but somehow they screwed that up too, leaving them with only photographs of the footprint. Because they didn't have the actual footprint, they lost any hope of matching individual ridge characteristics. The mistakes were so egregious that the army seemed to accept they'd botched the case. The charges were dropped, and Jeffrey McDonald was granted an honorable discharge. If Jeffrey had killed his wife and daughters, he'd gotten away with it. After being discharged from the army, Jeffrey McDonald made a few choices that struck his dead wife's family as odd. My next guest is Dr. Jeffrey McDonald. He loves me too. Like going on the Dick Cavett show. People in the army who wanted a court-martial, regardless of any evidence. Where are these investigators now who did the uh, original? Well, most of them have been transferred. It's, it's the army way of handling things. If someone really fouls up, you either give them a medal or you transfer them. Uh-huh. Something about the way he talked, cavalierly, dispassionately, rubbed Colette's loved ones the wrong way. Her brother, Robert. All he spoke about was how his rights had been violated. I don't think he once mentioned about, let's get the murderers. My family's been killed. But I remember him grinning like a Cheshire cat. McDonald also moved to California, got a new girlfriend, bought a nice car and a fancy boat, and basically lived his life like a carefree bachelor. He worked as director of emergency medicine at a medical center in Southern California, And when Colette's family asked him what steps he was taking to find out who killed his wife and daughters, he tried to placate them with platitudes. When that stopped working, he got more creative. He told Freddie Kassab that he and some Green Beret buddies had tracked down one of the four assailants, viciously beating him and put him underground. He didn't know that by this point, his father-in-law had started recording their conversations. Kassab wanted to believe him, but couldn't, in part because he had finally had a chance, after the Army discharge, to compare what investigators saw at the crime scene with the story Jeffrey had told of the attack. Things just didn't line up. With agents, I was allowed in the house to reconstruct the murders from his story of what happened in that house that night. Drug addicts running crazy in that house, killing. 
Don't leave one single clue in the house. There is not one drop of his blood in that living room. How does a man get stabbed and not bleed? The question seemed endless. Like, if Jeffrey had been sleeping on the couch, why wasn't his pillow there? Why did Colette, Kimberly, and Kristen get utterly mutilated when Jeffrey was just stabbed one time? DNA testing wasn't available yet in the 70s, but blood typing was. And it so happened that Colette, Kimberly, and Kristen all had different blood types, so investigators could tell that a large pool of Colette's blood was on Kristen's mattress. But how could that be if she'd been attacked in her own bedroom? Why was some of Kimberly's blood in her parents' bedroom? Also, the test showed that whoever had peed on the bed in the room had a blood type matching Kimberly, the older daughter. Yet Jeffrey told investigators that it had been younger daughter Kristen who had peed in the bed. And if Jeffrey had slept on the couch because Kristen was in his bed, how did she end up murdered in her own? Kassab searched missing persons reports in newspaper archives to try to find something, anything, that corroborated McDonald's tale of a revenge killing, but he found nothing. Eventually, McDonald himself admitted it was a lie. He explained, What it was was a terribly misguided attempt to try to get them off this very vindictive and I think pathological hatred that they had developed. I'm not saying they shouldn't be vindictive about the slaughter of Colette, Kim, and Christie, but I had come to a different spot. I said to myself after a while, they're not coming back. Still, McDonald insisted his story about the attacks were true, and Kassab's suspicions did nothing to negate how badly the army had botched its investigation. So Jeff was able to swat away a lot of it by saying, you can't trust anything gathered at that crime scene. And at first, it seemed like federal prosecutors weren't going to touch the case. In fact, while longtime FBI director J. Edgar Hoover was alive, he issued a directive. Under no circumstances should we become involved since the Army handled this case poorly from its inception. But Freddie Kassab was a man obsessed. He had come to believe that not only had Jeffrey killed his family, but that the son of a bitch was getting away with it. He was not having it. So he lobbied lawmakers through letters, on the phone, in person, until finally someone listened and convened a grand jury. Nearly five years after the murders, in January 1975, Jeffrey McDonald was finally charged in civilian court, the court we non-military folk face, with three counts of murder. But he still wouldn't face trial for another four years, during which time he lived a normal life out on bond. The delay was because he fought the charges, saying that it was double jeopardy to charge him as a civilian when the army had already dismissed charges against him. His lawyers also argued he'd been denied his constitutional right to a speedy trial. It took a while for the issues to wind their way through the system, eventually reaching the U.S. Supreme Court, which shot down the double jeopardy argument. They said facing charges in military court isn't the same as being charged in civilian. But they basically punted on the speedy trial argument, saying that issue couldn't be raised before trial. It would have to come after. Once the trial began, it quickly became clear that the evidence was not in McDonald's favor. While he presented an alternate suspect, a woman with a severe drug habit known to have a floppy hat, 
Helena Stokely, who died in 1983, had even confessed to being at the killing at one point. She said she'd been part of a satanic cult and that she and three men had gone to McDonald's house because he wasn't cooperating with opiate addicts. Their intent wasn't to murder, she said. Here she is talking to one of McDonald's paid investigators. Well, as far as I knew, all they discussed was going in and um, the term wrapping them up was used. And that's it. But Helena recanted, and then she confessed again and recanted again. In short, jurors couldn't trust a word she said. What they figured they could trust, though, was the blood evidence presented by prosecutors. And the evidence didn't point to Helena being in the house the night of the killings, or ever. The most convincing evidence presented was found on Jeffrey McDonald's pajama top. For starters, it was found in a weird place, on top of Colette across her chest. Also, Jeffrey had described his attacker stabbing at him with an ice pick while the top was around his arm, but the stab marks were perfectly round. And if those had been jabbed during a struggle, prosecutors argued, they would have been elongated and ragged. Also, there were 48 holes in that top, and when you folded the shirt the way it appeared in the photographs of the crime scene, you found that those 48 holes actually aligned perfectly with 21 stab wounds in Colette's body, meaning that the pajama top had to have been on top of her when those stabs were made. Lastly, investigators could see that some of the bloodstains matching Colette's type appeared to have been deposited on the shirt before it was cut, meaning that Jeffrey had been in close proximity to his wife as she was being stabbed. But according to Jeffrey, he'd actually lost the top before he went into his bedroom to check on his wife. And by the time he reached her, she was supposedly already dead. A forensics expert at the trial posited this scenario. McDonald and Colette had an argument that night. And no one can say what prompted it exactly, but Kimberly's wetting of the bed has been suggested by some. The argument grew intense, and Colette picked up a hairbrush, struck him on the side of the head. This infuriated him, and he hit her in the face with his fist, cut her lip, caused her nose to bleed. Stombaugh believed that the fight awoke Kimberly, who rushed into her parents' bedroom. And was either accidentally or on purpose struck on the left side of the head with a club, a vicious blow which knocked her unconscious. Thinking his wife was dead, he took a knife and an ice pick from the kitchen and killed his two-year-old, Kristen. He then went up the hall, picked up Kimberly, carried her to her room, then took the parry knife and stabbed her in the throat. But the blood evidence suggested Colette wasn't dead yet because a huge pool of Colette's blood, far more than someone could have inadvertently transferred, was found on Kristen's mattress. So prosecutors argued that Colette had regained consciousness, then run to save her youngest daughter. Because Colette's blood was spattered on the wall of that room, prosecutors believed McDonald ran after her and hit her again. He then took his pajama top off, threw it on her body, and then went out to the living room and staged the scene there. It had taken a long nine-plus years for Colette's family to see their son-in-law tried, but Jurors didn't belabor their weight when it came to the verdict. It took just six hours to convict McDonald of second-degree murders in the deaths of Colette and Kimberly, and first-degree murder in the cold-blooded killing of his youngest, Kristen. The thinking was, 
The evidence suggested Colette and Kimberly had been killed in a rage, but Kristen's killing was more calculated, designed to cover McDonald's ass as he concocted a bogus story about hippie intruders. McDonald immediately appealed and got a reprieve at first. A district court panel found that he had been denied his right to a speedy trial. McDonald was released on bond again and, again, lived a comfortable life in California. But that appeal wound its way through the system yet again, and this time, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that, nope, your right to a speedy trial begins once you're indicted, not before. Investigators hadn't charged McDonald until 1974, and that, the panel said, is when the clock started ticking. There's an interesting side story in this case that after McDonald was finally sentenced to three consecutive life sentences, he sued the author of the book Fatal Vision, a book I read to help research this case, because he had actually recruited the writer, Joe McGinnis, himself, thinking that McGinnis would write a story about a man wrongly accused. But it turned out McGinnis believed prosecutors. And while the bulk of his book is pretty dispassionate and fact-based, in his closing, he makes it clear that he thinks Jeffrey McDonald is a lying, narcissistic psychopath. That lawsuit was ultimately settled, and Fatal Vision went on to become a true crime classic. McGinnis's theory was that McDonald had been taking uppers, amphetamines, to lose weight. He had, in fact, lost some 15 pounds in the two weeks prior to the deaths and had written in a journal about taking an over-the-counter weight loss pill. And these pills aren't even sold anymore because they had horrific side effects like violent outbursts, paranoia, and hallucinations. But McGinnis said it wasn't just the drug. His theory was that the drug, combined with McDonald's narcissistic and psychopathic tendencies, was something of a perfect storm. McDonald couldn't handle criticism, Colette's questioning of his decisions regarding the kids' bedwetting and sleeping habits riled him up. He exploded and then tried to save his ass by staging the scene and inventing intruders. For what it's worth, Jeffrey McDonald says that's all bunk. It's absolutely false and it's very malicious because the evidence is crystal clear on this point. He has time and again fought for a new trial, presenting what his lawyers describe as new evidence. A book came out in 2012 questioning his conviction, as did a TV show and a podcast last year. Among his best-known supporters is Errol Morris, an Oscar-winning documentarian who wrote the 2012 book, which was called A Wilderness of Error. But those who believe in his guilt have never wavered. As Freddie Kassab once said after a court hearing, There is nothing in any of the papers that they have filed that would lead me to believe that he even stands a chance of, you know... But as long as he's got money, he's going to be filing papers. McDonald was denied parole in 2005. Last year, he applied for parole twice, though he canceled both requests without explanation. As of this reporting, he remains inmate number 0131-177 in a federal prison in Maryland. research this episode, I read newspaper accounts and also Joe McGinnis's book, Fatal Vision, which is deserving of its classic status. 
The documentary False Witness was a huge help as well. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessednetwork.com. This case was researched by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at Centuries Pod. And check out the Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page. 